Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. For this last episode of season two, I have a surprise guest I am especially honored to introduce you to, my grandfather, Edward Trigley. I wish I could actually interview my grandfather for this episode, but he died at 96 years old when I was just 17. So instead, I'm going to tell you a few personal stories about my grandfather's leadership during the Great Depression. When the pandemic descended upon us in early 2020, I thought about how leadership was responding to this incredible once-in-a-lifetime crisis. Most of us have never gone through anything like this before. And then I started thinking about my grandfather and how he responded to the clarion call of leadership in his time, place, and community during their once-in-a-lifetime crisis, the Great Depression. So my dad, Jim Shrigley, and I did some research where we pieced together some of these stories. And honestly, this is exactly why I started this podcast, to highlight a diverse set of everyday leaders, the leaders you may not otherwise hear about, who are demonstrating incredible examples of leadership and what it can be. So my grandfather grew up in York, Nebraska, which is a small rural town. And my grandfather was a banker. So you can imagine being a banker during the Great Depression and the kinds of challenges he might have faced. Now, before I dive too deeply into his story, I'd like to start out by highlighting the leadership principles he followed and lived by. That way, you can look for these as I tell you his story. His five leadership principles are these. One, integrity and trustworthiness are foundational. Two, shared sacrifice for the common good can lead to prosperity for all. Three, focus on achieving short-term results without abandoning long-term goals. Four, continuously and constantly communicate with stakeholders. And lastly, hold on fast to the belief that hope and persistence will contribute to success. Before I get into how my grandfather applied these principles, let me give you a bit of context around how my grandfather grew up. While my grandfather, Edward Shrigley, was a banker, his father, my great-grandfather, Henry Hudson Shrigley, was a farmer. He had immigrated to Nebraska from England in 1881. But as a farmer in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he suffered some very tough times. In 1892, he lost a great deal of money shipping live cattle from Nebraska to England by train and boat. While losing his first daughter at birth in 1897, in 1909, his darling daughter Margaret died at seven years old. As a quick side note, it's worth mentioning that Margaret died because she visited a neighbor friend who was sick. Margaret died three days later of polio, but her neighbor friend survived. Then, in 1911, he sold his farm in Nebraska and bought a farm in South Dakota, which had very poor soil, and Henry Hudson lost that farm. A year later, my great-grandfather returned to Nebraska a broken man. So broken, in fact, he didn't work another day of his life and died three years later at the age of 53. My grandfather needed to step up and financially support himself and his mother. So after graduating from eighth grade, he worked odd jobs 
digging ditches, mowing lawns, and delivering groceries with a horse and cart. It's hard to imagine that was my grandfather. But determined to graduate from high school, my grandfather returned to school and graduated from high school in 1921 at the age of 20. Afterwards, my grandfather became a bank teller. Then, in 1926, just three years before the Great Depression, my grandfather was promoted to bank cashier at the City National Bank in York, Nebraska. He then held that position for 19 years. Now, let's get into the heart of my grandfather's leadership story. When the Great Depression hit, collateral for loans at City National Bank were inadequate. Most of the loans from that bank went to farmers who used their farmland as collateral. Unfortunately, the value of land had plummeted along with the entire stock market, which made the collateral backing those loans inefficient. Therefore, those depositors, those farmers, were in danger of losing their money. Another serious risk was something called a run on the bank. A run on the bank looks like this. Everyone who has money deposited in the bank could withdraw their money at the same time. And if this happened, the bank would completely dissolve with no money left to pay the depositors. So even if people could get their money out of the bank, they would probably receive only a fraction of their deposits, even as low as 10 cents on the dollar. But of course, the City National Bank in York, Nebraska, was not alone. Confidence was dangerously low in the entire banking system across the United States at that time. For example, according to Ben Fountain, author of Beautiful Country, Burn Again, he said, By January 1933, some 5,500 banks had gone bust, and most of the remaining 13,000 were teetering on the brink, collectively holding $6 billion in cash against $41 billion in deposit obligations. A little bit more history here. President Roosevelt, who was inaugurated on March 4, 1933, made it his top priority to rebuild confidence in the nation's banking system. So on March 6, just two days after he was inaugurated president, he declared a four-day national banking holiday, which effectively closed all the banks temporarily. He did this to give Congress time to prepare legislation, and within three days, Congress passed the Emergency Banking Act. So during this time, City National Bank back in York, Nebraska, could have gone into bankruptcy because most of its loans were tied to devalued land. Now, this is where my grandfather comes in. It was time for him to act. He was determined to keep the depositors and their money safe even as other banks all over the country were going into bankruptcy. But to be successful, my grandfather needed to ensure that there wasn't a run on the bank. If every depositor at City National Bank decided to withdraw their money at the same time, the bank would foreclose. So my grandfather personally visited the families who had money in the bank. His goal was to convince folks not to withdraw their money. Now, I have to say here that I really wish I knew the words my grandfather used to influence, convince, possibly plead with his clients, his neighbors, and his friends. But I'm going to imagine that maybe, just maybe, some of the conversations went something like this. Let me be frank, George. I'm here to ask you to keep your money in the bank. 
please don't take your money out right now. If just one person breaks down and takes out their money, everyone else will want to do the same. Ed, this is tough. How do we know the bank, our family, our town will pull through this? I mean, I'd rather have some of that money now when I can't have it, rather than wait, I don't know, how many years? Ed, I've never been a betting man. I know, George, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. When you look back on your decision 10, 20 years from now, you'll want to feel good about this decision. Like you did the right thing for yourself, for your family. And honestly, just as important, you'll want to feel like you did the right thing for our entire community. Oh, I know, you're right, you're right, but this is so hard, Ed. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll keep my money in the bank, for now. Let's talk again. I'll see what I can do on my end to keep my money where it is. Now, if you can believe it, this went on for 10 years. I can only imagine a variation of these kinds of conversations taking place, many times. Perhaps they grew more intense. Maybe people simply got worn out by my grandfather and just finally resigned to keep their money in the bank. Maybe they didn't want my grandfather visiting them at their house anymore. There is another important story worth highlighting, which is practically ripped out from the script of It's a Wonderful Life. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Towards the end of these 10 years, a conniving man in town, let's call him Tom, approached one of the bank shareholders, let's call him John, with a deal. Essentially, Tom said to John, I'll pay you your share in the bank and I'll pay you right now. John agreed. After this transaction, Tom was now a shareholder of the bank. Tom's plan was to tell the bank to pay off his share. But Tom was betting that the bank couldn't pay, and then this would happen. The bank would be forced to liquidate and pay off its debtors, which means the bank would have to sell its collateral, the land, at the current asking price, about half the value it was before the Great Depression. Then, the bank would have to give everyone back their deposits, but probably at 10 cents for every dollar. So, what's Tom's motivation here? Cheap land. He would promptly buy as much cheap land as he could from the bank, hoping the value of land would eventually return, making him a rich man in the long run. So, a meeting is scheduled. The bank shareholders now know what's going to happen. They know if all the shareholders can't pay their share of what is owed to Tom, their community will pay a steep price. People will lose their land and their life savings. However, the night before the meeting, my grandfather visits each stakeholder and asks, do you have the money to pay Tom his share? Now, it turns out everyone can do it except for one. Let's call him Frank. Frank doesn't have the money. It's illegal for my grandfather to loan Frank the money. But my grandfather can give Frank the money. And that's exactly what he does. My grandfather doesn't get the money back. How much money? I don't know. But we can assume it was no small amount. Let's fast forward. When the Great Depression ended, land values gradually increased. The bank became solvent again, and people were able to withdraw their money at full value. As my grandfather liked to say, no one lost a dime. Now, throughout the Great Depression, 
which lasted approximately 10 years, my grandfather did not take a salary. While he was pleading with people to keep their money in the bank, he refused to take a salary. He did this to dispel any impression that he was doing anything out of selfish intent. In other words, he wasn't keeping the bank open so he could collect a salary. But after the Great Depression was over, my grandfather was given his salary retroactively in one lump sum. And what did he do with that money? He bought Nebraska farmland. He invested that money right back into the community of farmers who remain loyal to the bank. Now, let me share a personal side note. While my grandfather only gained a high school education, in my grandfather's eyes, education was like gold. The year before he died, when I was 16 years old, my grandfather sent me a letter. I'll never forget this letter, and I wish I still had it. It was probably the last letter he wrote to me before he died. In it, he implored me to hold off on getting married until after I'd graduated from college. Now, at the time, I thought it was pretty funny. At 16, I definitely wasn't thinking about getting married. But just in case, here was my 95-year-old grandfather outlining the reasons why I should make sure college came first. But, you know, the more I've thought about it over the years, I realized what he was telling me. He was telling me, I love you, in the best way he could. Even as a young girl, a blossoming woman, he was telling me that I mattered. My future and what I did with it mattered. And in fact, the fruit of that farmland my grandfather invested in after the Great Depression gave me the privilege of going to college and to graduate school without incurring debt. Thank you, Grandpa. Let's go back to the leadership principles I outlined earlier. Specifically, how did these principles guide my grandfather during what was probably the biggest leadership challenge he ever faced? One, integrity and trustworthiness are foundational. My grandfather convinced people to keep their money in the bank because he cultivated trust and demonstrated integrity before, during, and even after the Great Depression. The quality of his relationships were critical to his success. Two, shared sacrifice for the common good can lead to prosperity for all. People bought into his vision that if everyone sacrificed for the common good, each of their individual decisions would eventually lead to prosperity for everyone. And while asking others to sacrifice, he was also willing to sacrifice by voluntarily giving up his salary for 10 years. Three, focus on achieving short-term results without abandoning long-term goals. He made the connection between short and long-term results. Keeping the bank solvent now allowed the bank to pay its depositors in the long run. Four, continuously and constantly communicate with your stakeholders. My grandfather relentlessly and tirelessly communicated with his stakeholders for over 10 years of uncertainty and hardship. And lastly, hold fast to the belief that hope and persistence will contribute to success. His belief in the future of the bank enabled him to be persistent and to never give up hope. This was the fuel that drove him day to day, year to year. So how can my grandfather's story help us during today's once-in-a-lifetime crisis? As a leader in the business world, or a leader in your community, or even within your family, I would ask you to think about these questions. How can I cultivate trust and demonstrate integrity? 
Which intractable challenges require solutions involving shared sacrifice for the common good and the goal of prosperity for all? How can I connect the dots between short and long-term results and to be sure not to only think about short-term results? What am I communicating to my stakeholders? How intentional am I being about that message? And of course, what beliefs and mindsets are fueling my ability to be hopeful and to persevere? I can't say enough about how much leadership matters in every aspect of our lives. As many leaders are fumbling the ball during this pandemic, others are certainly shining through the darkness with their ability to leave effectively. So what are your stories? Where are you seeing glimmers of leadership that are shining through and really making an impact? I would love to hear your stories. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. I hope you enjoyed getting inside the shoes of my grandfather and his leadership journey in the 1930s. While season two comes to a close, I look forward to connecting with you again this fall when I kick off season three. And I hope you take this opportunity to catch up on some of the episodes you might have missed while I get to work on season three. To learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness, check out my website at www.winniedasilva.com. Or you can email me at winnie at winifred.org. I'd also love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Reach out and tell me what was helpful about today's episode. Or tell me about any other suggestions you have for my show. I look forward to sharing more transformative leadership conversations in season three. Thank you.